Hello, this is uh, Robin and... No, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, it's Josie and Robin's book shambles. It's Robin and Josie's book shambles. It's the 50th anniversary edition. <laughs> I'm 96 and Josie is now 72. <laughs> Very unfair. Um, we are doing a 50th anniversary episode. Uh, not anniversary, it's basically the 50th episode. And uh, Which, if we can just do 50 more, we'll be syndicated. Oh, yeah, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> that would we'll be, be a thing. <laughs> um, and uh, this is also to celebrate we're doing a kind of new venture, which is with Book Shambles and with Cosmic Genome and Vitriola Music and various other things that we do. Um, we are starting a thing called the Cosmic Shambles Network, which is uh, CosmicShambles.com. This is this is what it's basically like that uh, Omnicore in RoboCop. Sure. Yeah, we are, we have now become this kind of. Eventually, we're going to privatize, you know, run private prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to if we don't already. Yeah, private hospitals. We're going to do all of that stuff. Probably create a lot of illegal weaponry and torture equipment. But we're snack starting foods. off. Definitely some weird snack, slightly toxic snack foods mm-hmm. that are a bit too orangey. We're going to do all of those things, but we're starting off our empire just with a few podcasts and some bits of science stuff. But it will eventually be um, an all-encompassing umbrella of uh, well, pros kind of fascism. Sure, it's very fashionable at the moment. It certainly is. It's going well, isn't it? Though I've noticed some people have given it quite bad reviews with their placards outside <laughs> Downing Street. Um, so what we're going to do? Talk a little bit. Right, I suppose we should talk about what books because we never get around to actually talking about what, what books, books you've read apart from uh, Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark, which, Love it. which you know appears you've been reading for just by the way that these episodes <laughs> go out for eight months. Well, I have really. I refuse to finish it because I want to keep it with me. Um, I read Rebecca Solnit's Men Explain Things to Me. Great, great read. Lovely edition. Um, I just bought. So is that that's a kind of is that essays? Yes. So that essay is only. 18 pages long so and you know and also very small type uh, not very small type very the, it's not that long right. so it's well worth an easy read do you mean big type no it's it's very small on the page right. there's not that much of it but it's still small type so my brain was like well we can't lie <laughs> so what so you mean basically there's loads of white on the page oh yeah and just a few sentences in the middle absolutely and every now and again there's a block of reproduced text in the middle of the text so it's got a lot of padding in it. So this sounds to me a little bit like that um, thing that was on TV about um, unseen Peter Cook and Dudley Moore clips, where uh, obviously when it was commissioned, they went, yeah, it'll be an hour-long documentary with all the unseen stuff. And then they went, how much is there? About two and a half minutes. <laughs> um, Rob Brydon, if you could just continually say, this hasn't been seen since 1971. After the break, something that hasn't been seen since 1971. <laughs> We're going to see a clip. In a minute, but not quite yet, because someone else is going to say what the clip might have in it. Here's <laughs> Ronnie Wood. I like Peter Cook. Here's someone else. I like Dudley Moore. <laughs> so, if, uh, so, Rebecca, we're going to do uh, a book of all your essays. You do know that. Don't worry, it's going to be fine. Book of all your essays. There's three, and they're only 12 sentences long. Is that roughly it? Yeah. But it's good. And also, I genuinely think that it's such, like, as an essay, it's been so embraced by culture like i i feel so aware of what she's been saying i feel like it's been such a big part of discourse that you read it and you're like yeah yeah mate and it's like oh no this was your idea oh i think i said this the other day sorry um, matter. also i read so now i don't like the idea of us we're never negative on this we're never like i read this i didn't like it mm. and so i feel weird about saying this because 
I read a book that I wasn't particularly keen on, right? Because I wanted to read things that were a little bit more page turnery and thrilling. And I should have just asked people what was a my version of that. Mm. You know, I want things that I can very studiously and very earnestly underline sentences of that make me feel like I understand life better. I don't want to just read a thing, you know. That's my that's what I get from it. I want to feel like I'm communing with the author about life, right? But I read these two books, one of which was kind of a horror book that I thought was fine, and one of which was this um, sci-fi book. Uh, Why did you not... Was it a horror novel? Yeah. It, was... it wasn't Dead Funny Encore, the um, horror collection with stories by you and me still available, was it? No, but I tell you what, that... It's a great read. Mm, really great read. Um, your story in particular was very, very popular. Was it? Starburst no. Magazine. I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. Starburst Magazine, which I've been reading since I was nine years old, eight years old. Well, they picked out your story. Did they? Yeah. Thanks, Starburst, Starburst Bloody Magazine. Of course, it used to be called Oprah Fruits Magazine. <laughs> 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 Thanks, guys. That was the posse. <laughs> <laughs> We should definitely get a posse. But all of quiet readers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who at the end? Here's the posse. <laughs> oh, they didn't like that one. Anyway, I read this sci-fi book. It was partly because I was going to Vancouver and it was set in Vancouver. It was about people, half the planet stopped sleeping, half the planet seems to want to sleep more and more. And it was, and I, as I read it, I just found myself being like a little bit alienated by the narration. It felt kind of intrinsically a little bit kind of swaggery male in these ways that I was a bit like, Ugh. and also there was nothing in it that, that I was like seeking to underline. So I became quite frustrated in it and it was fun, but I just found it not satisfying enough as an experience. But then at the very end of it, there was an, uh, an article that accompanied it because the book itself is called Nod and again I don't want to sound like I'm being critical of it because I'm sure that other people would have loved it and I, I don't think it was like a bad book or anything but it was just frustrating for me because usually I read things that I love or whatever anyway article at the back of it the author explained the fact that just after he'd finished write, writing this book he was diagnosed with a terminal brain cancer and given a year to live and he's since passed away right Um, and about the fact that the book itself, there are all these uncanny kind of prefigurations of how his life would become and what he felt and what was happening. And at the end of the book, he the the um, protagonist is kind of slowly losing consciousness and slowly losing the world around him. And like, it's all about the end of the world, but it's about the end of your own mind and stuff like that. And I found that so fascinating. Like the idea that this person had created that fictional universe in their head just before this had happened to them and also then at the end of the essay he said that I actually think that the the narrator in this is actually I read it now and I think he's a bit smug and a bit of an asshole. and I realize now how much I love my life and value my life and how much love is such an important thing and although at the end of this there's some hope I think personally I feel so much more hopeful this essay at the end three pages long right incredible reading what is the book the book's called nod um and like I say, I just, you know, it wasn't really my kind of thing. But reading it with that context, it was like, felt like this most incredible privileged experience of like, whoa, like to have the two things with each other. Astonishing. Fascinating. It's interesting, that guilt about not liking things and then thinking, because I've found that years ago I did a kind of radio review show um, and 
I, when we stopped doing it, I was really pleased because I suddenly realised that I'd been negative about things. I didn't mm. really want to be negative about. And it them almost makes just, you make enemies. I just rather just kind of recommend. I went to see a play the other day, and it was brilliantly acted. Um, but I actually didn't like the play. I found the people, one of the people, so cruel, and and then I thought, oh, I'm not going to mention anything about that though, no. because uh, but that bit where you go, oh, I better not be to mention anything about my disappointment. Yeah, I better just recommend good stuff because it I turns think... out there's loads of people doing stuff that where they just go on about what shit. Yes, exactly, and I completely agree. I think it's much more important. Like it's like with Twitter, like I tend to either be angry about the government or recommend things I love, and I think it's much more important to do that because why not? Why not focus on recommending things you love as opposed to like just being snarky? Like what what does that help? Because people are either going to go, oh, I liked her idea of reading that, and now I've been put off, or they're going to go, well, I still want to read it. This is, or they're going to be like, great, that sounds shit. Bye. Now, what have you been reading? Well, I've actually had to start. Right, I'm obviously reading it from my Faber and Faber poetry diary. Beautiful. Um, and oh, look, old Possum's book of practical cats. A picture of that on the other page. Very good. Um, I've actually had to start keeping a diary of what I've been reading and seeing because I'm so scatty and I move from things too quickly. Yeah. I get to the end of the year and go, don't know what I remember reading. I don't know what I read. So, so far, I read Philip Larkin's uh, review of a Dick Francis book. <laughs> What do you think of it? <laughs> he really likes Dick Francis. Does it was he? really good. Yeah, my niece really likes Dick Francis as well. I've heard Dick Francis really good. I've never read any. Well, he's very popular, isn't he? Shall we read Whip Hand together and find out what we think <laughs> of it? That's yeah. the one where a jockey, I think, has got a robot hand. That sounds amazing. It's not science fiction. He's just got a hand that, anyway, he'd lost his hand in a jockey accident. Um, and I've been reading, lo- yet again, loads of J.G. Uh, Ballard uh, just interviews all the time. And they seem to their, their relevance is uh, disturbing me a great deal. Uh-oh. What's he saying? Does he say it'll all be all right? Not necessarily, oh. but he kind of also embraces some of these dystopian images of how society kind of falls apart in its own, like Millennium People and essays and and, and novels like that are really kind of and, and High Rise, which I think is a much better book than the, the film. Mm. I think it's very hard to, to... I don't think it should have been as hard as it is. Maybe it's a book you don't realise how hard it would be to adapt. When yeah, you're actually indeed, reading right. it, you think it could just be a bunch of events. But I also can see why he would also... Why he would have like optimism and stuff. like Because he chooses to make those worlds too. So then he's also finding like beauty and inspiration from like modern, brutal-seeming things. One of the things that most struck me was, I was reading, I can't remember again where this interview, it might have been in one of the research books, J.G. Ballard books, but it might have been in the Extreme Metaphors collection of interviews, where he talked a bit about when he was in a prisoner of war camp, uh, which he, where he, you know, which is partly what um, Empire of the Sun is, is uh, well, I mean, it's entirely what Empire of the Sun is based on. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a fiction, but it's a fiction heavily uh, based on, on on the life that he had. And he said that he felt it was almost something, it was good that it had happened to him because it made him realise that the life he had and that most of us have, the kind of lives we have, is the minority life. That that kind of hand-to-mouth trying to survive and going, oh, great, I've found a small insect now that I can eat that, and scrabbling around in the dirt is far more common than going, oh, I'm really enjoying just watching this on the telly now, and I think I'll have another Campari and soda. That's like Louis C.K.'s got that bit about how most people's experience of life is like being hungry and then dying. 
Oh, that brilliant one about the time machine where he talks about, you know... Going back in history, no matter where he goes, he's all right. It's fine, I'm a white guy. You can keep talking. I've just got to find out if we're going to get some directions now from Trent, the producer. Okay. What do you need, Trent, the producer? I'm also reading... uh, I'm reading Go Tell It. I hear him. I'm reading Go Tell It on the Mountain, which is by James Baldwin, and it's my first James Baldwin that I've finally read, and I'm finding it... Hang on, here's Trent, the producer. Since Josie's got to go in like yeah. five minutes, yeah. we can stop here, do the two seconds of filming we have to do. Okay. So Is that do okay with you? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thing. Close it quickly. We'll do two more minutes and then... Right, great. So anyway, then then this is how it continues, my, my reading diary. Writing, dentist, writing, watched more by Barbette Schroeder. This is never going to be published. Uh, the fact that I'm writing it in a Faber and Faber diary, a book that could never in the end, though, be published as The Diaries of Lebanon's. Writing, <laughs> dentist, writing. Uh, <laughs> Better than went home, had a Barclays. <laughs> thank you very much, Kenneth. Uh, the... Um, Played Lego. <laughs> I've even included that just so I remember that I was doing some. Le- I think I might be having some kind of breakdown. No, I think um, it's nice. It's the, better uh, than my diaries, basically. Why do I feel so tired and sad? Because you wrote that at 3 a.m. on your own. That's why. You're fine. Oh, That's I've been my reading something Jamie Cato, insanely talented, which is something about. Uh, not sure whether I like it or not. I have a little bit of a problem with kind of things that may have an element of self help that just goes a little bit too far. But it was very useful to Noam Chomsky and Michael Stipe, if you believe the back of the book. Well, so, which I do believe. Why would why would they they do that? It'd be cruel not to. Yeah, so, but did they have a long endorsement, <laughs> like a signed letter written by ten creatives? Because if not, yeah, no, that is true. I've been reading a lot about uh, um, abnormal psychology. Ooh. That's good stuff. What do you mean by that? Well, it's just people with kind of, uh, I suppose, uh, strange um, patterns, unusual human patterns of thinking and different forms of what we might consider to be madness. And it kind of starts off with that famous story of the man who uh, said, I believe that a lot of people in uh, institutions are not insane anymore. They've literally they got to the point of being placed in the institution. They've now fully recovered, but they're part of the institution. It just They just remain in there. And to prove that, uh, what he did was he got a bunch of people to go in and they either said that they heard one word or a ring of a bell and once they were incarcerated they're kind of that's it it doesn't matter if they never mention that again and they behave in an entirely sane manner and um, then after a month kind of they all revealed that they were he said what was interesting was that the doctors uh, didn't notice but all the other patients kind of going you're not mad I don't think I don't ha! think you're meant to be here and then after I forget the name David Rosenbaum I think it is and then after that, uh, people went, oh, look, that, yeah, you caught us out this time, but that's a load of old rubbish, actually. And uh, if you send a bunch of people now into uh, our institutions, we'll be able to find out all of them. And he went, OK, I will. And then after the month, they went, aha, we found them all and we've released them all, actually. And he went, I didn't send anyone in. Whoa! Anyway, that's a few of the things that I've been been reading and lots of comics as well. Yes, very good. Yeah. I've, I've been reading a lot of articles about politics. Heartbreaking, nightmarish, nothing that much fun. I just got a book of short stories by Walter Benjamin, finally. Basically, I only want to read sad writing of people from the 40s and the 30s. So yeah, ended, uh, uh, ended bleakly. Oh, my God, yeah. I've got to stop reading. I, I was reading a book about Fran- Francesca Woodman, the uh, artist. 
And that ended bleakly. Oh, God, I'm sorry. So anyway, happy 50th show! Yes. Ended bleakly. Um, and now, also in this show, hopefully you're going to hear lots of different people there. That was just the creaking of a door, uh, which was our producer, Trent, uh, who's setting up a camera as we say this, but we're Thank now going to listen... Thank you for your patience with us today, Trent. To, he has to, to sit there, hasn't he, eating his secret biscuits. <gasps> um, secret, secret biscuits. Secret biscuits. biscuits. You to understand that time is linear. And uh, it's not is linear. It it's a whole block there? universe. <laughs> We dealt with that. So anyway, now we're going to hear various uh, interviews that we did uh, from our previous 49 episodes, uh, which started with uh, Stuart Lee and uh, then with Sarah Pascoe, Izzy Sooty, uh, A.L. Kennedy. I can't remember them in order. Uh, A.L. Kennedy, Chris Hadfield, and I hope you enjoy them all. Thank you very much for uh, those of you who supported us for the 50 episodes or for 12 episodes or for any episodes. Uh, we're going to continue to give away books and we're going to continue to make these things. Uh, and I we really we... hope you enjoy it. We hope you do. And if you don't enjoy it, please don't listen to it. I'm really sorry that we've spoiled your life and you yeah. should have chosen another podcast to listen to. And don't worry, there's a lot of podcasts now. And if, yeah, if you delib- deliberately listen to it because you don't enjoy it, because it's cheaper than buying a kind of like rubber hat with all spikes that stick on the inside of your head, we're glad that we've saved you money on bondage rubberware that you didn't really have the cash for. Yes. That's our slogan. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, we are doing a podcast again, and uh, I should make it very, very clear that we are part of the liberal media elite. From the very first episode, here's some Stuart Lee. I saw Alan Bennett said something nice about me in an interview, and I was walking along a road in Camden, and I bumped into him, and they were filming... um, He was standing outside the house that he used to live in, where the lady in the van lived, which he wrote this book about, this homeless woman who lived in his drive, and uh, they were filming it at his old house, and he was at his old house. And and I said, oh, thank you for being nice about me in the paper, and we had a little 30-second chat, and that was kind of enough. And then as I was going along the street further, I saw Nick Heitner, the director of that film, going up in a kind of crane to get a shot of the street. And Nick Heitner, I knew from, I knew him like for a little bit, 10 years ago when I, I did direct something at the National Theatre. Hear and that he said, stranglehold, hear that grip. Hear, I'm gasping for some kind of other culture. Yeah, Why yeah, is yeah. Stuart Lee giving me <laughs> over three hours a year and on BBC Two in his Observer column. Is there nothing else for well, me? Well, it does look bad now that I know I've bumped into it. was just, what is this one road? And they were, they were filming a thing about Alan Bennett's life, so that's why he was there. And that road anyway, was the road to Buckingham Palace. It was, it was the road to Buckingham Palace, <laughs> paved with gold. But anyway, and then Heitner started talking to me, and then my son, who was seven at the time, we well, might even have been six, he said to Nick Heitner, are you the director of this? And he said yes. And he said to him... Um, you have to be careful because the weather's changing. It's starting to go grey and you won't be able to match up the things that you've already shot with what you film now. And Nick Heitner went, well, thank you very much. I'll, I'll bear that in mind and we might be able to do something in post-production. And I thought, oh, God bless him. He's an like, internationally renowned film director and he coped fantastically with a question from a, a child. <laughs> well, that's because really you make your son watch over and over again the Terry uh, Gilliam <laughs> film about how he could never manage to make Don Quixote, which has oh, exactly wow. that. Has already, And because I think when, when your son was five, you said, it's time now for you to understand sometimes the failure of artistic endeavour. And then he's seen it, what, about 17, 18 never times? Terry Gilliam getting he, angry he when it was. And your son's the DOP on your show as it's well. Yeah. <laughs> so, about a week later, we were on the same that. street walking along with my six-year-old son and my then three-year-old daughter. There was dog muck everywhere. Mm. And my daughter was going, dog muck, dog muck, dog muck. 
and there was an old man in front with a walking stick walking along, looking at the dog muck, going, Oh, God! Ah, dog muck! Ah! Anyway, then we ended up just behind him, and he turned round, and he went, Look at this dog muck! going, It's outrageous! And I went, Are you Jonathan Miller? And he went, Yes, who are you? And I went, Oh, um, well, it's very nice to meet you. We're all very grateful for your work. And he went, This dog muck, it's absolutely... <laughs> Why can't they clean it up? And then he went in. And I thought, uh, that is probably... Now, they say don't meet your heroes, but if you meet them while they're in the act of complaining about dogma yeah. in the street, then... It's a great leveller. Great leveller, yeah. Not too bad. Also, you've met now everyone surviving from beyond the fringe know, on the same yeah. street. In the same street, yeah, under different circumstances, yeah. And here's Sarah Pascoe. I think it's good it. to have that, because if ever you are... And obviously, I hope that you don't, but if any of us ever get run over and we're in hospital for a long time... That's when we go, well, do you know what? This is really awful about my legs, but I've got six months now to read these guys. and I've got books that I'm saving for. See, I think you're going to say, if we're ever run over and killed, when people are taking apart our possessions, they'll they'll go, I imagine he read all these Bertrand (laughs) Russell's. Yeah, the local local charity shop will have a real peak (laughs) in sales. (laughs) I always buy second-hand ones that people have already pencil-marked so people can presume they're mine. Well, sometimes I read read a book about menstruation. There's very few books on menstruation, actually, which is really odd. When you think about how often it... Chella Quint does. Uh, if, uh, ad- adventures in menstruating. If is that online, is it? That. Doing it for ages. Oh, yeah. yeah no, not it? online. Uh, but um, the woman who had underlined stuff had only underlined really kind of metaphysical things. So she was ignoring all the science and they were like, moon. <laughs> like, <laughs> like she was so there's the wise wound. She was probably the most famous. That's what I read, yeah. yeah, that's probably the most famous. The person one. who underlined my version of that is an idiot. No, but she was <laughs> a real but idiot. Sense. And the book is an idiot. In its own right. She was taking what she could get. She wanted yeah. a beautiful book about poetry, only about periods. Uh, she couldn't find that. So she's like, well, I have to read this bloody no, science no, book. No, it's because the, 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 myth, the mythological stuff about periods is much more exciting. Wouldn't it be great mm. if we all synced up and the moon was involved? How did we not sync up? No, no, no. no. It's all... Spoiler no, alert! No, 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 no. It's one of those things where it's all mm. anecdotal evidence and whenever they've tried to study it, we don't. And then we'll go, but we, our periods overlapped. That's not synchronising ovulation. <laughs> Having and, a bit, also, and again, the pheromones thing, they're going, how chance. would you and why would you? Like, and so some women are like, oh, yeah, it wouldn't be great if all women ovulated at the same time in a tribe. Why? It'd be ever so much work for the <laughs> men. If we have concealed <laughs> ovulation, what would be the point of us doing it all at once? <laughs> well, in fact, that would almost negate the yes, point, wouldn't course, it? Of the way yeah, that... exactly. Because babies would all be born at the same time. There'd be too much pressure. It couldn't... Oh, wow. I read I a book once, so I didn't read it. Yeah. It was uh, I, I bought it and then eventually went, I'm never going to get around to yeah. reading it. But what I liked was, it was called The Whole of the World and it oh. was, the initial point was that, who's the painter who did the, uh, it's an image of a woman lying back. You can oh. see her genitals and it's kind of, it's 19th century, quite a famous oh. image. Uh, and she's printed all the I it, don't know who the painter is, but it's always and I think it in might the beginning be of like, the feminist the... books of like looking at the genitals. Trent, can you look up The Whole of the World? Uh, I and, think uh, all of the books about the vagina mention yeah, yeah. that because it's all kind of the, oh the, the, the beginning of yeah I know exactly the picture you but mean it only has what, oh it's just a, a, a Corbett Corbett oh, is that the okay. one I think look up Corbett C-O-U-R-B-E-T yeah, if you can yeah. Um, yeah. but it all the way through, there's one underlining and that's it so it's <gasps> like this person seeing this one thing it's something about the clitoris and oh. they've just gone that found it that's all <laughs> yeah. every, every book I found the Bring the rest in. <laughs> so, how, I, say, I also constantly think if I broke my hip, 
That's what I'm going to read. Yeah. I was desperate yeah. to say to share that and be like, mm. I, I, I had the same, same thought. Yeah. Exactly. And, and but I that's the thing. If like um, I and I know you both guys both the same. I, so one thing I feel guilty about sometimes is I'm gluttonous because I, I want to own all the books. I want to have them all there ready. And I look at my to read pile and I go, if this was food, you'd be disgusting. Yes. If this was money, you should kill yourself. Mm. But I'm going, but it's books. No, you see, I see yeah. it that nearly all my books are bought in charity shops. Yes. So I go right one. Yeah. This I'm has gone towards. Not even that. I just go. It's all right. It's all right because this has gone. Because my house has got way too much. I mean, you know, it's it's infuriating for for people. There's there's a certain amount of order in one room. There's no order anywhere else. And it does look like you know that scene where the old lady in in the film of Fahrenheit four five one, where her house is being burnt and it's just filled with books. That's what mine is. And Charlotte Church. I um, I didn't have that much time. Like I worked a lot, and I suppose that's why I'm I'm a little bit scared of like seriously hard work nowadays because uh, I did work a lot and I was like it was hardcore um, but I used to read I pretended I don't know why but I pretended that I'd read the whole works of Plato I used to go on TV and just be like yes I have read the entire works of Plato and I found it satisfactory <laughs> um, but I, I skimmed that a bit um, because I thought, oh fuck, I better sort How of. Were you when you Did were you like... have that moment where they went to Antonatum Park? I'm joined by Charlotte Church and AC Grayling. Oh <laughs> bollocks! <laughs> Not Grayling. Who yeah. can I pretend instead? Um, but there was a, a book I loved when I was younger called *The Power of One* by Bryce Courtney. Oh yeah. Set in South Africa about a boxer, um, and I loved that book. I'm, I don't know what it was about it, but it really, really moved me. Uh, and another book called um, The Memoirs of Cleopatra. And I've always had a fascination with ancient Egypt and, you know, the gods and the whole system and the yeah. pharaohs and the Ptolemies and all of that. Um, yeah, by Margaret George, The Memoirs of Cleopatra, which I loved. And I cried when it was over. I was so upset it was over, but it was beautiful. Um, and I was, I loved the Harry Potter books a lot. I was doing a concert in Jerusalem, um, which was amazing. Um what an incredible place. And I had the, I think it was the fourth Harry Potter book, which I read in a night. Oh, wow. Yeah, I read it in a night. I was so excited to have it that I read it in a night and I had, and I didn't sleep and I had a concert to sing at the next day, this massive concert in Jerusalem. I love that too. You can't say, you'd be like, guys, I'm a bit rough today. Yeah. <laughs> I've been Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling. Yeah. <laughs> you could have done an Andy Kaufman gig, though. Like when Andy Kaufman went on yeah, and he would just read F. Scott Fitzgerald, Great Gatsby. But if you'd gone to Jerusalem, you know, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Charlotte Church. Um, what you got? I'm not going to be singing. I'm going to be reading <laughs> Chapter 7. Because <laughs> that's what's yeah. weird, because you are exactly of that generation, aren't you? Mm. Where the first book came out and you grew up with it. Because I find it difficult now because my son, he's read the first three. And like the second, the third one's a big <laughs> lump of a book for a seven-year-old yeah and then the fourth one all his mates they all started the fourth one and they all kind of went oh yeah and they made up different excuses like yeah i can't read this one because i don't like the font yeah <laughs> so uh, until until excuse. they change the font i'm afraid my son will not be reading number four <laughs> i um, haven't I, I i've got a stupid thing with harry potter which is when it first came out i was a little bit too old to be like Proper target market. Yeah. So I was like, I'm a grown up. <laughs> and that's probably like 17, but I'm like, you would have been at exactly the worst age for it, like, wouldn't you? Exactly. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you, you, you would have been. I, I, like I think I've mainly read the complete works of Plato, like Charlotte Church, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I found it fine. I mean, obviously, there's some lacking in his arguments, but, uh, but, I, but so I missed it. And then I did this thing, I was like, I'll read it with my kids. 
and then I still don't have kids. And yeah. I really do want to have them, but even if I had them now, I'd have to wait another six years. Yeah. And by this point, I'm really quite desperate to, like, read some, but I've come this far. I can't, like, read them now. Give in. I just I like the it. fact that one day your children... Your children, who will, of course, grow up to be serial killers when they found out <laughs> that the only reason you had them was so you could read <laughs> Harry Potter. And the reason that they it, were like, left alone in their smelly cot. Get back all in the of basement. That, yeah. No, no, they'd be fine till they're about ten, and then we'd read the last one, and I'd be like, and that's Harry Potter, and now you're going into care. <laughs> yeah. God. I don't mean it, children. It's dark. I don't mean it, future children, wherever you may be. I'm going to love you so much. Commander Chris Hadfield. I, I feel embarrassed because I feel like all my questions are so silly and I just love hearing <laughs> you speak. So I'm like, yes, that's true. That's beautiful. I, this I was, is just so you know, this is a hard one because we've recorded about six of these and the main complaint we get, they always talk over each other. So today there are going to be in all our recordings, these kind of bits of silence where we both look at each other going, can we attempt professionalism? <laughs> so this is <laughs> the problem. That we have. I know. I'm, and also I have silly I'll things. I'll start talking like, over you every yeah, time you're there. Yes. Yeah, that'll be fine. Well, that's Make you feel comfortable story. with No, no, no. Let's all talk over each other I now. Silly <laughs> to make things I want to say. Like, I love the idea that I, I was recently doing a quiz with some friends and one of the questions was, and it was a trick question, so it was ah. like, which man-made structure can you see from space? And everyone puts Great Wall of China, which right. apparently you can't. Which you cannot, uh, no. And me and my friend were like, Suez Canal, Suez Canal, right? But then I thought, you could just spend the odd week going around quizzes, waiting for that question, <laughs> just so you could stand up and be like, none of it! None of it, yeah. Did you? Uh, can you see anything? Suez, you can see the Panama Canal. Uh, you can. Uh, I deserve that point. Yeah, you, could, you, you did indeed. You can see lots of things. Any place there is something that is high contrast, like a really sharp road that cuts across uh, an undulating terrain or a dead straight road, or where the color contrast is really bright. Harbors stand out, of wow. course. So Harbors. Quite a lot of like to things. Tokyo Harbor is so man made. Uh, that that it's obvious, you know, you can just see it completely. But the small subtleties of something like the Great Wall, no, because it, it's it's contoured and it's dirt colored and it's like beautifully camouflaged. It's like they were trying to hide it from aliens. You can't see the Great Wall of China, but no, you can see all sorts of uh, Dubai. Of course, is ridiculous from space with the Palm Islands and the World Islands. It's like it's like they're trying to give aliens something to take snapshots of on the way by. Um, so yeah, there's lots of man-made things you can see. I suppose it's a not a funny kind of like uh, I'm not sure how to transposition of human beings' ambitions because <laughs> that sort yeah. of is what they're doing, but they would never think that's what they're doing. You know, they're saying like, "I am Ozymandias, look at me, I'm <laughs> so great." You know, but that but literally what they're doing is like. I think it's I Ozymandias. So I'm afraid of being insignificant, and therefore <laughs> I want to do something that. Um, that will be my particular pyramid, yeah. and and whether it's oh, it's, can you see the pyramids? Uh, if at the, if the sun's low enough, because you can really only see the shadows, wow. because the pyramids are the same color as the dirt, really sure. to a large degree. So you're not going to see that because it looks like dirt. But if the if it's morning or night or dawn or dusk, then the shadows are long enough just on the edge of Cairo, and you know where to look because you can find the Nile no matter what, and then you can see where Cairo splits into Alexandria. And if you remember where the start where the pyramids are, just there on the left, um, then you can actually. Narrow and fine. I never saw the Sphinx, but I did see the pyramids, even though wow. they're right next. And of course, there are lots of pyramids, but these are the great pyramids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, and then of course you can grab a big camera lens and, and like a, like a, it becomes like a microscope where suddenly you can see the minutia. But with the naked eye, uh, there there are lots of man-made things you can see on the world, and, and some of them, like Dubai, you sort of look. It's almost like 
suddenly you're looking at somebody's misbehavior. You're like, what are they up to down there? What are they thinking? That's why? supposed to be a desert, guys. <laughs> how, how, how on earth did we rationalize to the point that that's what we're up to in this corner of the world? But at the same time, you go, eh, what the heck? Yeah, they, well, spinning, there we go. Yeah, there you but go. That's, there, the that's what they're doing. That's new wow. Ozymandias, isn't it? Yes. Look on my shopping centres, ye mighty. <laughs> yeah. And look at that's the, you know, Dubai, this great big shopping centre where climate you know, change, when, when I think about climate change. You don't yeah. have to, yeah, there's no you don't even have to see them rot. You don't even have to see the decline that you just you walk into it and you go, I despair. Yeah. Well done, Ozymandias. You've 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 got you've really found the shortcut to despair. Thanks very much. Yeah, Westfield. We, yeah. <laughs> We've built it into a shopping mall. Yeah. Actually, I think that a sense of despair diminishes a lot to go around the world. You look at it and you realize this is just what we're up to. It's all right. We're just us. We're doing these things. Some of them great and magnificent. Some of them very self-indulgent. Some of them just trivial. But it's just a bunch of people uh, pursuing their own ends. And most of it is pretty magnificent, actually. The thing, you know, what, the number of us that are living, the standard of living, the accomplishment, the level of health, the, you know, it's not perfect by any means. But Dubai's we're, got we're loads of water well. slides. And they do, and they have an indoor <laughs> ski hill and, and create probably the longest zip line in the world and craziness there. But uh, I, I think you get a little more indulgent seeing the whole thing at once. We, we I, wanted to ask. Oh no, no, okay. We wanted to ask you what kind of things you had read in space, but also I wanted to ask, what kind of silly things you like to read? Like, what would you say your indulgences are? Your literary indulgences are? See, I'm I'm excited to hear that if I say scientific progress goes boink, you will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> On board the space station, in the toilet, we kept um, shit. My dad says. <laughs> In the toilet. Because it's perfect bathroom reading. And in fact, Justin Halpern, who wrote it, I think he wrote it recognizing how long people normally sit in the bathroom, tried to make each chapter that long. And it's it's perfect bathroom reading. So uh, and it's funny because we had it there and it, you have to either Velcro it to the wall or strap it down with a bungee or something. But it turns out the handrail on the left side of the toilet is just the right thickness for the thickness of Justin Halpern's book. So it wedges in behind the handrail. And so I read it and then I, uh, I stamped it with the space station stamps and then brought it back to Earth and gave it to him. So he has he has that copy of his book back on Earth. So that's one of the books I read in space. Can we be told the dimensions? Because this will now allow lots of keen <laughs> authors who think, I, I don't care how many people read the book as long as at least seven of them are in space. Yeah. So what dimensions do we need to work on with our publishers to make sure that we can get our, our book wedged in an astronaut toilet? I, th I think if you take your right thumb and you bend it at the first knuckle and you take slightly thicker than that. I think right. that that's about the thick, not too thick. He's got very oh, small thumbs. I've got thumbs. weird thumbs. Though. Oh, oh yeah, borrow someone. Yeah, 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 not your thumb. This yeah. is this is not a Robin Ince thumb. We're talking oh. just a typical uh, person just, in the street I'd say thumb. That's probably so not non-freak thumb. My <laughs> my thumb is a very poor thing. I'll, also, I'll end up on the QE two. Wedged <laughs> in an astronaut's wedged. toilet is a brilliant title <laughs> for something. Yeah, <laughs> not his thumb. <laughs> but uh, yes, your uh, your book would float out. I'm yeah. afraid. If, yeah. And also, if I did get to the ISS and think, I'll just wedge my thumb in there. Get, <laughs> how long's been up there now? 17 years. He's beaten Tim Peake. Idiot put his freakish thumb in there. The, um... From one of our Christmas specials, here's Mark Gatiss. Do you have a favourite, obviously apart from your own, reinvention of Sherlock Holmes? I was thinking of things like The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes or The 7% Solution. Private Life or... is my favourite film of all time. And uh, a huge influence on uh, me and Steve Moffat. Uh, it's a beautiful, it's a masterpiece. And it's so funny and yet so melancholy. It's got the lot, I think. It's, it's, uh, and, and a bit like On A Majesty's Secret Service, which is my favourite Bond, it's actually, it's not quite rightness is what makes it work. 
Robert Stevens is actually quite a quite a florid, sort of Wildian uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, um, uh, Christopher Lee's Mycroft is is absolutely inspiration for mine, and that, you know. But but it's it's a it's a sum of things which are together. It's a love letter to Conan Doyle, and and it's so particularly Billy Wilder. Uh, it's a wonderful film. Recommend it hugely. Did you ever think of shaving your own head like Christopher Lee had to do? For <laughs> That's so naughty. You can say that now because he's dead. What uh, do you mean? Christopher what? Lee wore a wig forever, uh, sometimes quite a good one. Oh. And to his dying day, he insisted that he had to shave his head to play Mycroft Holmes in The Private Life, and he didn't. And in fact, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, another parallel story from uh, Roy Ashton, the uh, makeup artist at Amicus, who was doing a film with... Christopher Lee when he was auditioning for because it was originally going to be um, it was going to be uh, George Sanders who had to pull out and so he went from eating and and it went quite he came back to the studios and Roy Ashton said how did it go he went yeah quite well there was something and and Roy Ashton said he said they want to see me again and he said Chris take it off and he went back in and he got the part and I think it was because Wilder thought I'm not sure I can work with anyone as who is that vain? Yeah. And he took, but he still, to his dying day, said uh, he had to shave it. And when I, I didn't realise, right? I was genuinely, Mark was yeah. going, ah, oh, what you didn't know? And I'm not the only one. There's loads of other people who've been. Really, the only reason I found out was because there was something in the oldie magazine about the one time that his hair came off, and it was when he was making the Far Pavilions, and his horse reared up next to Rupert Everett's, and uh, he fell backwards, and it came oh, off, and God. he, he scarped immediately. And that, that is the only time. I'm going to say, if I'm ever on television again, I'm going to say I had to put on a lot of weight for the part. <laughs> <laughs> it was gruelling. I had to it put on a lot of weight for the part. One of my fascinations. I've, is, it was, and my dad forgets about this, but we were going around an exhibition about uh, the uh, underground in, the, uh, in World War II in France, uh, the underground movement, and there was a bit of, of secret army, and he said, look, you can see the gauze on that picture of Bernard Hepton, and you could see the little gauze on Bernard, and, and, and he goes, I don't remember that. I said, yeah, but Dad, you told me that at 10, and from that point onwards, I became obsessed with the fascination but, but, of But gauze. you see, that's totally different. That's a, that's a character wig. Oh, that's a character wig, yes. yeah. Yes. That, oh, no, I'm not, no, no way having no. go at Bernard Hepton. Is, <laughs> I, I don't want to be slanderous, but is there anyone who's famous now who wears a wig? Well, I find it interesting. There's a lot of comics who I, don't, I think people don't wear wigs as much, do they? Because they can have like Frankie Howard. Have I never transplants. thought of wearing a, a wig because it, it was so exuberantly. <laughs> yes, it, it was. Him. It was like a banoffee pie. His it was so terrible that that the streak of brown, the streak of kind of cream from the t- it was terrible. It was like he just taken out the wash and plonked oh, it on God. his head. Um, well, people have a lot of weaves now, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's quite it's a more sophisticated now. It's a silly question. Yeah. I always find that w- I'm kind of wary of the modern comic doing that because I think that in a lot of stand-up there's meant to be a level of honesty and therefore mm. that, that is thing. you know why I've never through. Anthony Burgess always had a problem with that yeah, comb over. Yeah, yeah. That, that mm. was. Uh, I mean, here's a strange thing sounding like a, an old curmudgeon in the corner, but the the current trend for young men to to have comb overs when they don't need them Ooh. is amazing. Some of the, I mean, you look. I saw a guy the other day, a really quite handsome man who looked like a '70s football manager, because he'd combed it from his right ear over, and it's like, don't do that. One day you'll have to. Don't do it yet. <laughs> He's a bit of Nick Offerman. Well, I, def- I definitely get pegged with a machismo that, you know, I, I'm I'm built like I look the way I do, and I, you know what I mean. I understand that I have like a stentorian voice or whatever. Sure. I understand that I'm I'm constructed to play a sheriff, 
but <laughs> but that's that's kind of where it ends. I mean, I yeah. I am not a sheriff. I don't. Uh, I always say that I would rather shake hands or dance with you be- long before I would want to punch you. Um, I, like long before, like there's it's still there somewhere. Well, sure. I mean, as with anybody, but I. Do you quite enjoy subverting it then? Kind of. I mean, I I I am. Um, I'm much more on the side of of promoting, you know. I'm a real lefty, and and uh, Ron was a libertarian. Mm-hmm. The scariest thing is there's a percentage of libertarians in the states who didn't understand the comedy of Ron Swanson, oh, yeah, yeah. and they said finally someone has written a champion for our for our sect, and those people get really upset with me when they discover that that's not me and that. And that that was a joke. And it's a comedy show. <laughs> it's a, a god. And a yeah, like show. it's brilliant comedy, and they're like, "No, that's my life. God damn you!" Well, there must be an annoyance though for people for the, the the kind of. I mean, I realize that now Fox News is seen as a as a liberal enclave since Trump has just you know made that decision. But it's for anyone in Hollywood, anyone working in in the media actor. There's this whole kind of oh well, they would say that we know how these liberal people who can't do anything. But as you were saying, your kind of background, your ability to to make stuff means that you're the worst kind of uh, person on the left for easy dismissal yeah. because of your life experience and what you actually do. So how do you find that? I mean, trying to be political. I mean, in the show that you're doing, that you're touring at the moment, does that has politics? And you were saying there's a there's a Trump song and stuff. How do you get them the any kind of uh, non-mainstream message out in a, a media that seems well increasingly myopic? Megan and I both, I think, would say we're not uh, we're we're not good enough journalists to uh, to, to weigh in that heavily um, when it comes to politics. I mean, Trump is such low-hanging fruit. You. Know, it, it it would be idiotic to do a comedy show right now and not do some Trump material because it's just hanging there. If you don't pick it, it's going to go to waste. Um, but he's he's so easy to make fun of. We just we literally wrote a song that's a list of facts about Donald <laughs> Trump, and it's the funniest thing in the show. I mean, people are rolling in the aisles. Um, but I I sort of try you know. I, I can't even begin to keep up with the news cycle because it's 24-7. And so instead of try to do that, we just try to weigh in uh, on the side of decency and open-mindedness and, and you know, generally uh, do battle against um, against stereotypes and bigotry. Uh, and because it's it's all of a piece, you know. Um, I, I, I try not to judge like for example, um, we do material about religion, and I, I I I write about it in my books, and I say, look, if you're religious, great. I have I have no beef. I would never judge someone, even if you, even if your religion sounds so silly, like you have a rabbit in your yard and that you think is God. Great, whatever you want to do, if it brings you solace, wonderful. If you try to then bring that into the public sphere and and go to a city council meeting and say we should all worship my rabbit before the football game then then that's something that we can have a beef about and i think then i think you're a jackass and i'll say so 
If it's uh, a really good rabbit. Keep it oh, yourself. Oh, God, I've seen a really... The moment <laughs> you said that, all I imagined was a kind of slightly dystopian future with a kind of Cormac McCarthy road and that point where you look at the rabbit that is your god and realise you have to eat your own rabbit for oh. your survival and there you eat your own god. Have you read that poem? I've got to stop imagining these dystopian futures with rabbit death. Have you read that poem that's like, <laughs> we're here to see the rabbit? Which rabbit, the people say? The last rabbit. The last rabbit in the world. I think it's called After Pervert. When I was a little kid. Well played. Thank you. <laughs> when I was a little kid, my mum used to really want us to be like very accomplished, like very Jane Austen. Like very, she was like very wanted us to social climb. So she would get us to learn poems and enter competitions in the Beckenham Festival. And I had to say, we are going to see the rabbit. Which rabbit? <laughs> the last rabbit. The last rabbit in England. And it was behind a fence. I remember that. And the rabbit's very scared and it runs away. Wow. So there's a real moral here, guys. Yeah. I wish you hadn't brought up rabbits, by the way, because you've made it very depressing. I would there's love so much to rabbit ask... death with your rabbit day. They used to yeah, call them rings. connies. Yeah. Mm. And in, they had to stop because it sounded too rude. In some of my favourite books, the uh, Patrick O'Brien, Aubrey Maturin series, the seafaring novels, they often go ashore to bag a brace of connies for dinner. Here's Lisa Dwan. So on the, uh, you, what's the uh, first book on the, ah, uh, classic. Now this is something that we love, which is the fact that uh, It Raymond comes up Carver, in every single. No, it, it, it started no, everyone... off, there was a lot of Vonnegut. We were Vonnegut heavy. Uh-huh. But there's nothing wrong with going, uh, it turns out, lots of people like Raymond Carver. Well, I'm kind of just in love with short story. You know, and I read a lot of poetry um, um, traveling a lot. Sometimes that's all you're able to really digest and also holding so much text in your head when you're learning. I've just learned, uh, you know, another hour of Beckett and you're trying to keep that in your head. And so you need to be careful what you take on and, you know, and so it does kind of limit your reading. So I always kind of delve into poetry. And I think, you know. Carver's just a poet in the slightly longer form and I I adore him um, and I've just finished reading what we talk about when we talk about love um, and I I just I find him extraordinary his um, the music in his work mm. is so great wow. um, and I just heard him read that story himself and it's just so fast and flat and relentless and Gosh, do you know, I've, I've never thought to look him up. I, I've well, downloaded put him in my yeah. head in the past. And for me, the past does not have recordings, which is so ridiculous because there are recordings of people reading their work from 100 years ago. But why yeah. is there no George Orwell? Wow, why is there no? There is no George Orwell. Conspiracy. Isn't that bizarre? Really? When you think he did war broadcasts and stuff, because it was all well day sure? the other day. Is there no, there's no, no George record Orwell. of his voice? Yeah. Fucking hell. Well, that's interesting isn't it oh don't bring one of your communist ideas into it again in your communist jumper but that's what's his voice i've never i've never heard his voice and yet i've read so much of him and i think of him so much and they're not always the best reading but it's very interesting like um t.s Eliot. i i i I, he's a very interesting uh reader of his work but it's not necessarily the best on location in cambridge robin spoke with yanni teller i mean i from young people, I generally get the most interesting reactions, actually. And often they write me, you know, and formulate in different ways, but uh, it's like, I'm, this is a strange book. They generally start in different wording. I've never read anything like it. Uh, sometimes they say they don't even know if they like it or not. Sometimes they love it. But, but it has made me think. 
And one girl, for example, wrote me, before I never thought about anything. Now I think all the time. <laughs> or another boy, a 19-year-old German, wrote to me. And he was from apparently a well-off family, divorced parent. He told me, I tried everything to find life. I was all meaning in life. I was always depressed. I tried to buy all kinds of things. I traveled. And, you know, describing all what he had tried to do to find some meaning. And he said, but I couldn't find any meaning until a few hours ago when I read your book. And I still don't know what he told me. But now I feel there's a meaning. And I thought that was so beautiful. And I often f find that it's almost as if because I allow these existential questions to speak, be spoken out so directly, everyone can relate to it. And it gives voice to this doubt people have. And though there's no clear answer with two lines under this is and the meaning, but it's somewhere still between the lines, I think people do find, well, we prefer to be alive rather than dead. And just even in that preference, well, there is a life and there's also because somehow the children in this process where they put these items of uh, of meaning in their heap of meaning in, in the old sawmill, how they in a way disrespect the meaning. I think readers also can see that, even young kids who read it, and how you must respect both what matters to yourself and to others in order for it to stay meaningful. Um, so I think there are a lot of these things that people pick up on and... I mean, I've been very touched, like there was a bipolar woman in Colombia who wrote me and uh, how this was the first time she felt she could explain to people how her life felt when she was in the down periods. And another time I was in Chile in November and in a small school outside of Santiago in a poor area, the children had read this book and they had each written me a letter you know, in Spanish uh, to me, but... One of the girls read, then the translator, of course, was translating to me. And it's the first time I really cried from what someone telling me. She had really, a, you know, a tough life, this girl, and I think had been abused. And but reading this book, she felt somehow connected to some meaning and could see a way forward. And, I mean, to me, to have written this book in Denmark 15 years before and then to sit in a little village in Chile and connect with a girl of such a different life, I mean, that, to me, is astounding. You know, that's what... I think, again, literature can do when you accept that it is communication from one soul to another. Cross humanity, it's universal. Um, so these are yeah, some of, for me, the astounding reactions that that book has given. Here's Ronnie LeDrew and Sweep. And then um, I suppose I love doing Sweep because I saw Sweep as a kid you know on television so um, you know he's so here. So when did you do Sweep then? When was... Uh, I did it in 1977. And uh, this is the one. Have you found me? Is I'm holding a sort of a boat. boat. That's yeah, it. Yeah. That, that, that would have been with uh, Harry. With Harry and yeah. with Matthew Corbett. Math yeah. Basically, Matthew was one of the singers on Rainbow. I was at Thames uh, rain with Rainbow with Matthew. And um, Harry sudden, suddenly had this huge heart attack, which meant that he couldn't oh, sort of front the show anymore. Um, but he was well enough to be in the show, but not to front it. So Matthew sort of decided that he would have to leave Rainbow and take over and did 25 years as, as long as his dad did actually fronting the show. And Matthew, because he knew me and puppets and all that, and I was a bit mad on them, he said, well, you'll have to come and do Sweep, because he'd done Sweep for a couple of series before. So there you are, there's Sweep. Anyway, you've got to be quiet now, Sweet, because um, you know, <laughs> I'm doing the talking. No, it's all right. Oh, poor old thing. And now, Helen Chersky. In terms of writing popular science, 
what were the first popular science books that you read and and who for you now having having worked for a few years in science communication who do you think who do you look at from any decade any century who do you think are there there is the way to communicate ideas so i read a lot i've always read a lot i love books and but the first science book i remember reading and this is going to sound really cliched but it it is true was A Brief History of Time. And I read it when I was about 11. I think my mum got a copy for me and I just went straight through it. And in a way that, I guess it made a lot of other physics easier because if you're presented with those weird ideas early on, you just take them for granted and then you just proceed. So I remember reading that and I I remember it because it was, well, partly because it was weird and fascinating and I got it. There were geometrical, there, there are lots of geometrical pictures in there and sort of cones and things that I got. I was like, that makes sense. I get it. I get these ideas. Uh, and then because everyone made such a fuss about me having read it, because apparently everyone bought it and didn't read it. That was <laughs> apparently what happened to that book. Um, but uh, so I remember reading that and I read what I read variety. I read everything. <laughs> so I don't so I don't know what other science books I'll have to think about that. When it comes to writers today, writers now, there are two types that I, you know, the two types. There are the ones who just spend years on one topic and they dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. There's a wonderful book that I didn't bring with me called Feathers, which is just about feathers on birds. And they're fascinating in so many ways. And this person kind of spent, you know, 20 years just writing about feathers. And it's wow. brilliant because of the, the perspective. And then there's the, the overarching suite. My favorite bit in any book, in any science book, or the best written book is at the end of uh, Richard Forty's book, The Earth. And the, the book is about geology and he visits the various continents and talks about rocks. And then the last chapter, he sort of flies over the surface of the planet and weaves in all these little stories you've seen. And I went, that is just the best achievement. That being able not just to see the perspective, but at the same time, exactly see the details that, make up that perspective that is such a wonderful skill so and i like precision with words so anyone who is very precise about how they write i'm not into loose language there shall be no loose language around here i think you know you you were the english language is so rich you know we don't appreciate because we stole words from everybody else basically mm. we've got 17 words for everything but that means there's nuance and it's it gives you so much richness in terms of communication so anyone that uses language carefully that's brilliant. So that's by uh, Thor Hansen, the Feathers book. Yes, yes, it is. It's behind it you on the looked, screen. It's not because I'm oh, right. overly wise. Um, Richard Forty. I'm sure I didn't see that coming in. I was. I wrote a. I wrote a, re- a review of it a couple of days ago. That's why it was on my huh. mind. Oh, is that is that is that uh, Trent has just made that yeah. pop yeah, up? Yeah. The, uh, We've got a secret that, that fact checker. Thing, uh, That's why I'm sitting here facing this way. So I think you're <laughs> but behind me, all the answers are appearing. But oh, you know a Wizard of Oz moment! Toto, I told you to stop <laughs> doing the <curtain. laughs> Alan Moore. So, but, it's a, but that thing where it's like on our last one, where uh, on the podcast where you came on. This is ten years ago now, maybe, maybe less. But where you said that you like lush bath bombs. I remember we've got loads of people getting in touch that were like that could not believe that you exist in the same universe as the lush shop did, did, and bath bombs. Did I tell you about um, that they were going to actually make a scent? That was based upon me. That I was actually approached That's for the people in Lush, and they said, um, "Yeah, we're, we're thinking about doing a line of products, sort of based around you. And what sort of scent do you associate with yourself?" Ooh. And I said, "Well, that would be hashish and superiority." <laughs> and they've since told me that they they can actually manage the hashish 
they've got something that smells like hashish, but they're bewildered by the smell of superiority. <laughs> but um, no, I still go in there quite a lot. You know, I like uh, that. It's a scent called morphine <laughs> as well. Morphine. That'll be good. We'll sell. It'll sell. I would like you now to create a scent that is then advertised by Kate Moss. And which therefore ruins your reputation. Right? Yeah, because we tried to turn you into a stand-up comic a few years ago that to ruin work, you. Really. That didn't no. work. But no. I believe now if they make some kind of slow-mo advert with the scent of you and the clouds are just made up of your beard while Kate Moss wanders under it. Kind oh, of... that. Yeah, I think that you've, you've kind of, you've given me a retirement plan. Yeah. <laughs> that would totally work. What's that smell? Mmm. Mm. Alan yeah. Just more. More. Just more. More. That would, yeah, you've got it there. That's great. Thank you. You're hired. Thank well you done. very much. The, I, um, go on. I know. I was thinking about we did this um, show in Milton Keynes once. This is five years ago, almost to the day. Christ, was that was five that, years was that ago? Five years ago? Yeah. Oh, it's bizarre, isn't it? Well, I, I told everybody that I was the god who had created Milton Keynes. <laughs> yes. And they, they still believe me. The primitive, superstitious people of Milton Keynes still worship me. As a kind of deity, so I believe. Every time the trees die, they blame you, which means they're blaming you quite regularly. That's true. A lot of dead trees. But he's got the run of the uh, of the shop, the main shopping centre, yeah. and the key. Yeah, absolutely. You go in there whenever he wants. Okay. Any time he wants to unicycle near Halfords. Oh, he's more than welcome. Ringing his unicycling yeah. bell. <laughs> if I just want a kind of thrash around in the middle of Legoland, I can. <laughs> you know? <laughs> the um, we haven't talked about other people's books beyond H.P. Lovecraft, and we talk about we will talk about. Uh, well, I don't know whether we should. We might talk. Let's talk about Jerusalem tonight uh, because it is a. It's. I, I know I've joked about the hugeness of it, and everyone is kind of daunted by it. And did you know? We'll just quickly talk about Jerusalem. When you started writing it, did you know already that it would be of epic proportions, or I as had you... a feeling it would be big. Uh, because I was trying to get such a lot of things into it. It probably technically should have been four or five books, but I just got, I wanted to get them all into one book. Mm -hmm. And so I knew it would probably be quite big. I knew it would also only be 35 chapters, but I didn't know how long those chapters would be. It wasn't until I think I'd finished the end of the first book and for... Oh, actually, if they're all as long as this, then this is going to be enormous. Uh, that was the first time that I actually realised the scale of the thing. How long did it take you as an undertaking? Probably, given time off for good behaviour, about ten years. But like after, I mean, other books have taken me longer. I mean, Lost Girls took us about sixteen years. Wow, really? And From Hell was ten. Wow. And sort of uh, Jerusalem. Um, like when I got to the end of the Lucia Joyce chapter, that had kind of dented my brain in some way. I was having trouble with the ordinary English language. I just felt exhausted. Yeah. And I thought, this would be dreadful. If I carry on writing Jerusalem, that exhaustion is going to show in the writing and it's going to be there for all time. Yeah. So, what I need to do now is to stop doing Jerusalem and do um, a lovely underground magazine for the next sort of uh, 18 months or whatever. And, yeah, that did the trick. By the time I'd finished that, I was ready to return refreshed. Here's Noel Fielding. Um, do you the, like uh, it because of the engineering? 
What do you like um, about pop-up books? I had a book called The Haunted House. When I was, did you? Have yes. Book? Who? What's Yan, the name? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Jan Pienkowski. Yes, that's it. And I was obsessed with that book when I was a kid, to the point that I um, started trying to engineer my own pop-up books. I was, I guess it's because I was more into the drawing and the pictures than yeah. the writing. I was slightly dyslexic, and I was really good at painting. So um, it was less about the words, more about the pictures, I suppose, when I was quite young. And I just as a kid, I suppose, now with technology as it is, maybe that wouldn't be so impressive. But the simple things when you're a kid, like flick books and pop-up books, yeah. used to blow your mind when you were at school. I mean, you know, it wasn't really an age where you could get on the internet and see all kinds of magical CGI treats. No. It was literally, have you seen this book? It comes at you. <laughs> I can move the eyes. Why, <laughs> someone was saying about the podcast that I do, and they said, you know, do you deliberately do the kind of, you know, you're very analogue. You deal with a past world, because I do, I do podcasts about music, which is like from the old days. I mean, it's not old music. It's contemporary music we've made now, but the very idea of music, sometimes I might, they might even hear me. Uh, you know, taking out a piece of vinyl, which apparently is very fashionable now, um, and then books. The idea that that's considered now to be this kind of old analog thing. Books. Oh yes, books. I remember those. Oh, I don't. I mean, I am obsessed with books because I like. I like to have something in my hand. Really, I like to hold a book. I find it hard to read off a screen. Me too. I don't know why. Maybe that's just me. Maybe because I'm a bit dyslexic. But I. Mm, if I get sent a script, I have to get my agents to print it out for me. Yeah, I, I cannot learn it if it's on the screen. It doesn't I, feel official to me. No, if it's if so, uh, the idea of reading a book on like a, on an iPad yeah. would it would feel like you didn't really read it though. <laughs> you were just looking at something. Yeah, you skimmed it. Yeah, and yeah. you can't draw in it with a pen. I know you could no. like put a note on it. You can't highlight the screen. No, well you can, but like, it's not the same. <laughs> I think <laughs> there is a different engagement. I, genu- I I totally agree. I think there is an engagement when you are holding a book. There is. It may be because yeah. of from generation that will disappear in the next couple of generations. Yeah. But on the pop-up thing, by the way, one of my favourites that I found a couple of years ago in a charity shop, which was just was the MC Escher pop-up book. You're going to say MC Hammer, then. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> could have uh, been good. Um... <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to the 50th episode. We're not going to charge Patreon supporters for this one, but we will thank those Patreon supporters, at least some of them, who include Daniel Fisher, James Reeves, Molly Howard Foster, Deborah McCroth, Simon Smith, Michael Welsh, Beth and Will, and David Turnbull. And we're also going to give away two boxes of books. And this week, those boxes of books go to Rachel Worrell and Chris Davis. If you don't support us and you think, well, I've got a little bit of spare cash and I'd like to hear more people waffling on about books, then you can just go to cosmicshambles.com where you'll find information about either donation through Patreon or just a one-off donation through PayPal. Thank you. Josie would say thank you as well, but she's had to go off somewhere. She's just left me alone. She hasn't left me with the key to the door. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.